Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with activists, artists, and experts in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your guest, Joe Ramsey, broadcasting here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, well into our second week of this forced shelter in place. Our show topic today is breaking down the bailout, and we have two terrific guests who will be joining us shortly to offer their expert perspective about what this recent so-called bailout, this federal relief package, the COVID crisis package entails, what it means, what people need to know about it, what's in it, what's not, and what it means for organizers and those who are seeking to support people in solidarity in this moment. Uh, before we get to that, uh, we'll also, I should also point out, we'll be joined later in the broadcast with a report from frontline worker struggles happening across the country. We hope to have Barbara Mataloni, longtime president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and current editor of Labor Notes with us, joining us late, later to talk about some of what's going on. I mean, the situation uh, in this country and around the world is an acute crisis right now. I was just looking over the headlines a moment ago. I'm sure many of you are familiar. We've had 2,400 deaths in just the United States in the last 24 hours, bringing the total US death count from COVID to close to 35,000. Uh, that brings the total world count to, co to close to 150,000 deaths already. Two million people reported to have, uh, to have the disease already. Um, and this health crisis is quickly becoming, has quickly become an economic crisis. Recent news in say that 5 million people filed for unemployment this week alone in the United States, bringing the total of the past month to 22 million newly unemployed people. Um, many of these highlights may be, uh, and lowlights may be familiar to, all, to you already, but our hope today is to get beyond the headlines, to get deeper into this bailout, what it means, not only for us as individuals struggling in, to survive in this moment, but as activists and organizers who are seeking to seize the opportunities as well as confront the dangers of this moment to make a better world come out of this crisis than we went into this crisis with. Uh, the first guest I'd like to bring in is Doug Henwood. He's an author, a pundit, a Facebook a persona, uh, a radio host himself with uh, Behind the News on the KPFK network, as well as a blogger and an analyst who posts at Left Business Observer. Uh, Doug, we're really happy to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. How are things where you are? Well, you know, I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, the uh, sirens have died down. For a while, we heard sirens all the time. Uh, the sirens are now uh, only a few a day, so I don't know what that means. Uh, we also live under the uh, flight path uh, to LaGuardia Airport, and uh, it used to be a plane every minute or two, and now just a few a day. Um, so uh, just the this, this sounds really are a marker of how things have changed here. Uh, and, you know, we, I've, been, I've been out very little. I've been sort of sealed in the apartment for a little over five weeks. Uh, go out for a walk now and then, but um, it's a weird way to live, uh, especially in a big city where we're used to crowds and people who like big cities like crowds. And it's really very frustrating uh, to be uh, so socially isolated. Absolutely. Our second guest today will be Matt Stoller. Uh, Matt is also an author of the recent book, Goliath, uh, which tracks the conflict between democracy and monopoly uh, over the last hundred years. Uh, Matt is also a director and a voice with the American Economic Liberties Project. And uh, Matt, before we opened up for questions, I just wanna check in. First off, say it's really great for you to join us on such short notice today. And uh, how are you doing? I understand you're in DC. I'm good, I'm good. You know, a little stir crazy, but 
very fortunate um, and I get to write and, uh, and study things and I can do that at home. So uh, I, I, feel, I feel very lucky um, amidst, you know, a lot of people are not doing well, so. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as our, our, the title of our show implies, right, shelter and solidarity, of course, it's important to remember not everyone even has the luxury of shelter, of sheltering in place and social distancing in this moment. Um, some of us do. And for those who do, we hope the show can be a tool not only to get people through this period, keeping their sanity and their, their spirit intact, but also giving them concrete things they can do to contribute to the struggles of, of other people around the world and in this country. Doug, let's start with you, just to keep things a little organized here. We'll go to you first, but I mean, Matt, I, I'll be pitching you similar questions in a moment. Uh, Doug, what do you think everyone needs to know about this recent bailout package? Um, in particular, things that they might not already have heard through the headlines. You know, what is your read on what this recent so-called bailout package uh, represents? And you know, what do you see as uh, the problems or if there are any virtues in it? Uh, what's your kind of read, your balance sheet on it and what it means? Well, there's several components to it. One, of course, is what the Federal Reserve is doing, which is pumping trillions of dollars. I've lost count of how many trillions into the financial system. Now, I can understand wanting to keep the financial system from completely imploding. Uh, if it imploded uh, completely, we'd be in even worse trouble than we are right now. But uh, their aim is basically to restore the status quo ante. And uh, that is not something I think is a very good idea. Uh, we should have a different kind of financial system when we come out of this than when we went into it. And then, of course, there's what Congress passed, <coughs> the $2 trillion rescue package, um, which has some good things in it, um, but has a lot of bad things in it. The um, you know, the aid to people, uh, the increased unemployment insurance, uh, uh, $600 a week, uh, additional benefits, uh, wider coverage for people who previously weren't uh, eligible for unemployment insurance. These are good things. The $1,200 check, if they ever arrive, this is a good thing, but, you know, very meager. Um, so that portion of it is certainly better than nothing, but uh, far short of what other, what other countries are doing, which are providing much more aggressive income supports to people who get unemployed. Uh, but then a whole bunch of the package is you know, aid to big business. Uh, the president has a $500 billion slush fund with no apparently no oversight. Uh, and the assistance to small business um, is already out of money, but the whole thing is very poorly administered uh, and very poorly conceived. Um, so that is, um, you know, there's a little bit of good stuff in there, but a lot of not so good stuff and some actively bad stuff. Uh, we don't need, to, you know, all this aid to the airline industry, to Boeing. These are com companies that had uh, spent fortunes buying back their own stock and now they're broke. Uh, that kind of financial recklessness characterized a lot of American business over the last uh, decade or so. And now um, here they are facing this massive crisis with very little in the way of resources. But I would want to emphasize this, that this is not like, a conventional recession of the sort you learned about in Econ 101. It's not like the pre previous financial crisis, which originated in the financial sector. This is with the real world. This is like labor. People can't go to work. Supply chains are broken. Things are shut down. There are going to be a whole bunch of small businesses that won't be able to reopen when this is all over. Um, so there are the people, the IMF, uh, other people like that are expecting uh, JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, they're all expecting something of a, a pretty rapid bounce back later in the year. I really don't see that happening. But I would say longer term, what we really need to do instead of just pumping all this money out is really address 
um, the physical infrastructure of the country, which is falling apart. We need a Green New Deal and at, at both parts of that, the Green part and the New Deal part. We need to rebuild the infrastructure, uh, find some way to live uh, within uh, the, the means of our climate around us uh, and just reconfigure um, the physical and social way we live. I mean, we can see the this crisis is really bringing out uh, the intense class and racial and geographical fissures in this country. Uh, we really need to address those, uh, the, the incredibly, uh, poor allocation of health resources, not just health insurance, but where hospitals are, uh, the kinds of resources that are available to different communities. Um, you know, it's just the, the screaming inequality of it is just a scandal. And we really need to address that uh, if we want to emerge from this a better country. Now, there is a chance we could, you know, we could have a, a different ethic of solidarity and a certain longer term uh, understanding of uh, how we should approach things. Certainly not stuck in a half with the current leadership. Uh, it's hard to imagine a Biden administration uh, even uh, rising to the level of an FDR uh, 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 sense of how to restructure things over the long term, but funnier things have happened, I suppose. But, you know, there is this, I hope that we could think about this and uh, have a re serious rethink of the way our political economy is organized. Uh, because, you know, as climate change gets worse, there's going to be more of this sort of thing, not less. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed in some of your, your public writings on the, the crisis, you have talked about this element, uh, the element of opportunity in the current situation, right? And one, and one, note, one note I saw that was prominent in some of your LBO writings uh, was on, you know, the idea that not every industry should be brought back, right? That we're in this moment when many industries have been collapsing. And, and to some degree, it, it's not, it's not the, the way in which we chose to get to, to the issue of like, how should we plan our economy? We didn't ask for a virus to bring us there. But in some sense, we've been brought to this position where the economy is so overtly politicized, right? I mean, could you say a little more about that, about how this uh, moment may in fact create opportunities uh, to, to address some of these concerns about which industries should be brought back and which ones should not? I know you mentioned the airplane industry, one of the notorious polluters, as well as of course, one of the, the great conduits for the virus itself. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, yeah. wrap that. I mentioned at the top that I live under this flight path uh, to a LaGuardia airport and like every minute or two in, in normal times, an airplane, goes, we, we just fly too much. Uh, we have to fly a lot less. The airline industry needs to be restructured on a much smaller scale. And we really have to think about what, where it should be in the longer term because it is one of the most filthy things you can imagine. The president wants to bail out the cruise ship industry, which is an environmental crime of the highest order. They're just filthy. Um, ships, not just um, spewing carbon, but they, they burn a really dirty diesel fuel too. So it's just, a, it's a crime, it shouldn't exist. Um, the, um, the president wants to bail out the fracking uh, industry. Um, and uh, they're, they may be using public funds from the bailout to restructure uh, the fracking industry. That's something that should go too. Uh, we need, it'd be, this would be a great time with the oil price this low, it'd be pretty easy to nationalize um, the oil sector and uh, basically put it out of business. Uh, soon <laughs> it's some one way or the other uh, uh, uh replace private transportation with public transportation um uh high-speed rail you know i remember back in the, the financial crisis 10 years ago china built 10,000 miles of high-speed rail um we were still trying to debate building a little one in ohio i believe it was just you know that kind of thing but also our state capacity is so eroded all these decades of neoliberalism have left our political class really incapable of thinking or governing in any meaningful way so to, to watch the hapless way uh that uh, uh people at every level of government from you know the idiotic president on down have botched this thing uh 
my mayor uh, in New York, my governor, who is now a hero, but uh, both these people drag their feet terribly in shutting down the city and the state. Uh, we have people, you know, governors in the South who are not shutting it down. We have the, the Pennsylvania state legislature trying to override the, uh, the, sh the governor's shutdown. Uh, we have a just really, really um, kind of sick and incompetent uh, political culture that we need to think about. Um, you know, the CDC used to be one of the great institutions uh, in the world, and now it's really, it looks very eroded. Nothing seems to work very well in this country. We really need to think about that, about all that too. Um, and then, you know, the financial system. I mentioned at the beginning that the, the Federal Reserve is pumping trillions of dollars in, money that it basically creates out of thin air, uh, to restore the status quo ante. No, we need to have a different kind of financial system, one that is basically a utility that uh, serves basic functions but doesn't really get wild and speculative. So, you know, we do have this opportunity since everything right now is dependent on government uh, largesse. Uh, we're not going to come out of this without some kind of active state. So let's get something out of it instead of just trying to go back to the way of doing things we, the way we did before. Yeah, well said. Uh, I think that that note about the bankruptcy of the political class perhaps would be uh, an appropriate moment to bring Matt Stoller into the conversation, Matt. Uh, you've written extensively not only of the problems with the bailout, but the problems with the political establishment uh, Democrat and Republican that has allowed such a bailout to go through with virtually no votes against, right? So I, I invite you to, to comment on the bailout, uh, to add to or to, uh, to, you know, to join Doug's analysis, but also pick up this specific question of what do you think is being revealed about the political class and the, the politics of this uh, country uh, in this moment? Everything seems fine to me. <laughs> Best of all, all possible worlds. It's all fun. Yeah, whatever. It's all good. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah so, so, okay, so a really hacky thing to do is to, is to cite like a weird old philosopher who's somewhat obscure um, to justify what you think. So I'm going to do that. Uh, so there's this philosopher named Richard um, Cantillon who was a, he was basically a private equity guy in the, in the 18th century. And, uh, and then he wrote a book, one of the first books about economics. And he, he named uh, something called the, or something in that book was named the Cantillon effect, which is basically when a, when a nation discovers gold, what happens economically, right? And what he found or what he described is when a nation discovers gold, the people who get access to that gold, first of all, are people that are closest to the king right? People that are closest to the mine owners. And then the, the gold goes out and has all sorts of consequences in the, in the um, eventually the gold finds its way, the money finds its way to the rest of the economy, but the people closest to the king get it first. And so in that time lag between when they get the gold and everybody else gets the gold, because, you know, they eventually buy things like meat pies and hire servants and whatnot. Um, they have an opportunity to acquire more assets and acquire more power. There's a lot of internet, there's also a lot of trade consequences as well, but it's sort of an interesting observation. Um, and it's basically one about institutions, right? Because what he was saying in the 18th century is, like, is you know, if you're, if you're close to the king and the king is the most important institution, then you're gonna get the benefit of an increase in the money supply. Now today, the king would be the Federal Reserve, right? Um, but also the other institutions that de deploy money in our culture. Now, if you look at the CARES Act, which is the, the bailout, which you could say is somewhere between $2 trillion and $10 trillion of money 
and credit, but who's counting, whatever. Um, the people that get it first are the people that are closest to the Federal Reserve. And the reason for that is in many ways because of this, the same thing that happened in the 18th century, which is that it's just a as a practical matter, there's just no way to get money out to ordinary people or to small businesses particularly quickly. We don't have the institutions to do it. The government has really, as Doug said, has been hollowed out. But you know, the institutions that do still work are the things like the Federal Reserve's uh, relationships with Wall Street banks or its relationships with private equity or its ability to trade in sort of obscure but important capital markets. All that stuff works fine. The Fed can do a lot of things there. But if you wanna get a check to somebody out there who doesn't have a bank account, that takes six months. Or if you want to get a bunch of money out to small businesses, well, the Small Business Administration has kind of been a backwater for 30, 40 years. And all that stuff that gets to normal people, to people without power, that's been hollowed out. It doesn't, you know, so as a result, Congress passed this bill and had money for hospitals, it had money for, uh, for cities and states, it had money for ordinary people, it had money for the unemployed, a bunch of money for big business, it had money for Wall Street. So Congress kind of wanted to deliver money to everybody because there's this really big shock to the economy, which is sort of the right thing to do. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll quibble with, with, with uh, some very important parts of it. But even though they wanted to do, to get the money out, in fact, because the institutions have been hollowed out because the, of, by like decades of, of sort of bad policy, the money gets out to people with power first. And so it's the private equity industry uh, and, and Wall Street that are able to get their hands on, on capital and everybody else in a, is in a sort of distressed position. And, um, and so you're seeing a real reorientation of power upward because of the, the Contillo effect. Now to give you an ex a sense of what private equity industry is, private equity are basically, uh, another way to put it is merchant bankers. They're people that take money, they borrow money, they buy companies and, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, but there was a scene in Goodfellas where they, the guys take a piece of ownership over a restaurant and they run up um, the, the credit of the restaurant to buy liquor. And then they take that liquor out the back and sell it for half off. And then eventually they burn down the restaurant for the insurance money. So what they do is they take an asset and they just loot it, right? And what they're really doing is they're stealing from creditors. So in many ways, that's kind of what private equity does. So private equity will buy a company like um, this private equity firm called Sycamore Partners, they bought Staples, the big you know, office supply store. And they immediately borrowed a bunch of money that Staples borrowed, issued a bunch of debt, and then they paid themselves, they had Staples pay themselves a billion dollars. And then they had Staples give Sycamore the Staples headquarter. And then Staples signed a 10 year you know, deal with Sycamore to just rent the headquarters. So what they were basically doing is they were transferring money from lenders to staples to themselves, right? It was kind of like the, the Goodfellas, I was, that's called a bust out. That's what private equity is. That's why things are so corroded. That's why, as Doug pointed out, increasingly things don't work. It's because what, what the people in charge of our, of our um, corporate world, and private equity has about $6 trillion of assets under management, which is about a fifth of the total amount of our whole stock market capitalization. They've ruined, they keep ruining these companies. They also control a lot of our politics. So they keep ruining our institutions. So stuff doesn't work. That's what eventually happens. Like when you have arson, when you put arsonists in charge of your society, eventually, you know, you burn all the restaurants down. And so 
what we're seeing, even in con- if Congress wanted to act, oh, and by the way, Jay Powell, who's, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve, he actually comes from private equity, he comes out of the Carlisle Group. So don't worry, that's taken care of. So, anyway, so the point here is that, is that um, this, this debate that happened when, before the bailouts, and I was paying attention to coronavirus um, back in February and in January. And, and then I was like, oh, you know, so I worked in Congress during the financial crisis. So as the debates were starting over, you know, who to give money to, I was like, hey, this seems like a bad idea, what they're doing, and tried to organize progressive groups to, to sort of structure the bailouts differently. And I got like very little interest, um, very little interest from the, from the left um, on, on, on what to do, because there was sort of this, oh, this stuff is too, too complicated. I don't understand. I want to kind of retreat to more comfortable things. And as a result, even the, the top um, kind of the most important politicians on the Democratic left side, sort of the Warren Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, whoever you want to point to, um, they they were working with Chuck Schumer to pass this bailout, which passed in the Senate 96 to zero. The House didn't even do a roll call vote. Um, And there were a few people on the right who voted against it, AOC voted against it, but it was pretty much unanimous. And what I I saw was a kind of entire system failure on the left and on the progressive side. Um, People that just kind of were just too, too frightened to, to really learn and pay attention to, to corporate power and, um, and really just kind of wanting somebody else to take care of it. And I, I was very disillusioning to watch that debate play out. And now, you know, I'm sitting here explaining why, you know, there's yet another kind of catastrophe. And it, Doug knows this. This is, this is the Michael Milken model for how to finance things. We saw this in the 80s with junk bonds and savings and loans. We saw this in the 90s with the bailout of, of uh, banks through Mexico um, long-term capital management. We saw in the financial crisis, which I'm sure you guys all know very well in 2008, 2009. And, um, you know, we're seeing it again. And in many cases, it's the same people doing it. So Robert Rubin was involved in the bailouts, Clinton's bailouts in the 1990s. He was involved with uh, Milken and the mergers and stuff in, 19, in the 1980s. And that's, that's the whole private equity industry comes from that. He was involved in the 2008 crisis. He was an advisor to Obama. And Robert Rubin was, was advising the Democratic House members when they were negotiating with Trump over this, uh, over this bailout. So we have the same people doing the same things, continuing to engage in arson, and you have the same culture on the Democratic progressive side of just people being like, what? What happened? What is that? What? I don't understand. And I, I just am kind of like, I'm like, all right, well, we're just going to go through this again until someone somewhere actually notices that this stuff is bad and that it's preventable. And uh, we should uh, prevent it. So that's kind of where I am. I'm just kind of like looking at this. And I think it's all like, I mean, you know, it's like, it's not funny, haha, but it is kind of funny. So I don't know what to, I, I know that's like a, a little bit uh, cynical, but that's kind of where I am. I'm just like, right. well, people don't seem to care. They don't want to be free. Hmm. I, I invited you to the show after hearing you make some of these points on uh, the Useful Idiots podcast and on Democracy Now, Matt. And uh, I mean, I, we're really hoping that we, from today's discussion, we, you can arm and help to tool up some of the activists and organizers who are on this call and who uh, may be watching this broadcast afterwards which, which, with uh, ideas and un, you know, nuts and bolts understanding of some of these financial mechanisms that could actually be taken up at the level of organizing that many of us are engaged with. I mean, I wanted to ask you, and we will bring in Barbara Mattaloni uh, momentarily. So glad to have you back, Barbara, on your phone. Can I hear your voice just to make sure you're with yeah, us? Yeah, I think you oh, can hear me, right? Okay, great. Yeah. You can hear, great. So we'll come to you in just a moment, but I'll give Matt one more question for now. Uh, Matt, 
you wrote a couple of pieces recently that that uh, focus on private equity. One is actually called something along the lines of should private equity even exist, which seems to be an argument that it shouldn't or that it at least large in large part it should be abolished. I wondered if you if you would uphold that as a demand that you think people should be taking up, uh, whether it with within the context of work organizations or, or public politics more generally. Uh, I'm curious, you know, is there, uh, would there be a problem with doing that? I mean, from the standpoint of workers, communities, small businesses, or is private equity, as you have painted, essentially in large part an essentially parasitic gangster-like uh, force that really should be and could be targeted uh, in, in the way that some of your writings suggest? I also would ask you if you could talk a little more about how these private equity interventions and profiteering or gangsterism, as you've described it through Goodfellas, uh, connects with the current COVID fight back. You, your other piece on, that you came out a couple of uh, uh, days or weeks ago focused on literally profiteering that's happening right now in the medical industry as private equity firms, right, are intervening to actually, I believe, cut medical staff in some of these hospitals, right, um, even as, of course, the need is, is just blooming. So can you talk a little more about how, how you see the private equity uh, economics and politics intersecting with the conditions of workers and what that how we might politicize what you're saying about private equity within progressive politics, assuming we do want to be serious? Yeah, I mean, the, the, key, the key is to, you know, is to be curious about business and commerce because business and commerce is how, what is an important way that we structure social justice in America. And so you have to learn about banking, you have to learn about commerce, you have to learn about market structure. If you wanna be a participant in conversations about justice, that's just the way it is. And work, workers and work is a, is a form of commerce. I mean, it is um, production. That's, that's just, that's our, you know, we're a nation of tradespeople. So the problem with private equity um, private equity is just a, a, a shorthand for a way of financing business. Um, and uh, just to give you the philosophical problem, private equity is, uh, the problem is that it's, it's ownership, it's control without responsibility. That's the basic problem with the, the way that we're running our economy in general. Private equity is a, is a, it's a fund, uh, the legal structure, it's, it's a, you have a, a group of, of guys who get a bunch of money from a pension fund and then they take that money and they buy companies which they put in their portfolio like a mutual fund you know you'd buy some sh shares of stock except the companies they buy are they buy entire companies not just a few shares and then they run those companies um, but the thing is is that because of the legal arrangements um, the, the legal structure of the of the business if that company goes bankrupt they don't, you know, they don't have to pay for it. Only the company itself goes bankrupt and they can sort of, the debt, you know, is attached to that company. It's not attached to the private equity partners themselves. So they don't have any responsibility if they screw a bunch of stuff up. Um, so it kind of insulates them from actual having, from having responsibility for the companies that they buy. They also, I mean, there's a lot of like, sleazy ways that they are able to borrow money. Often what they do is they will, you know, be able to, there will be an agent that's in charge of a bunch of money that they, and they want to borrow. And so that agent is not necessarily um, representing their, um, the, the people whose money it is particularly well. This was the case with junk bonds in the 1980s. It was the case with savings and loan. 
there's a sort of self-dealing aspect to it where where if I have a bunch of money to lend and I don't care if it, you know, and somebody bribes me to lend the money and it's not my money, I don't care if I get paid back, I'll take the bribe. And there's a, there's a lot of ways that the private equity industry has a lot of collusion. And so they're borrowing money. That's not their money. It's pension fund money. And, um, and often sort of moving it to their, to their pocket. But the basic, and there's a lot of legal arrangements that, you know, we, we, we enabled this by changes in antitrust law. We enabled it by changes in banking law. Uh, we've, we've enabled it by a, a series of, you know, a series of changes in a whole uh, in bankruptcy law, a whole bunch of pieces in our economy. And we can fix all that. There's a, there's a bill out, I think it's called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act by a bunch of like, by Tammy Baldwin and Sherrod Brown and various others. But like the basic idea is, is you have to, you have to stop these guys from, from doing what they're doing. You have to repair these, uh, the, the, uh, you have to marry uh, control with responsibility. Um, and fundamentally the bailouts made the problem worse because you know, one of the problems with the big problem with private equity that they're having, the guys themselves, is that they have a lot of debt because the whole industry is based on borrowing money so that you can buy these companies and loot them. Well, now all of a sudden, what do you do when there's a, a crisis like this? Well, another way of talking about debt is to say you have less and less margin of safety, right? Because if you don't get revenue and you can't service your debt. So now all of a sudden there's a crisis and what happens? The Federal Reserve comes in and starts buying junk bonds, which are the, the mechanism by which these guys fund some of their uh, some of their takeovers. Now, I don't think it's going to fix it. I think this problem is too big for just a debt rollover to take take uh, to take care of it. But that's the basic problem is these guys have control without responsibility. And then our uh, the financial system, the, the Fed and then Congress has, has on all sides has enabled them to continue this. I think what is a very dangerous predatory business model that's destroying our capacity to make things that we need. Thank you, Matt. I'd like to, on that issue of control, right, and, and who has control and how control might be seized back from some of these people who are doing so much predatory damage. I'd like to bring in Barbara Mattaloni. Uh, Barbara is actually a special co-host of this of this episode. We have some technical issues, so she's joining us as more of a respondent. Um, in a moment, after Barbara has a chance to speak, I also want to let Matt and Doug know, I'd like to hear from Barbara, Doug, and Matt about what you think a true, for lack of a better term, people's bailout would in fact look like, right? And how that differs from what has been done and how that uh, might look going forward. But Barbara, before we come back, go back to Washington and the issue of uh, how the state and federal government can, can uh, relate to this crisis from above, if you will, uh, I'd like to go to you for a report and a reflection um, on what you're seeing and hearing about and participating in, in terms of the, the struggle on the ground, workers, communities uh, caught up in this COVID related struggle, the economic aspect, the, the public health aspect. I know you're in touch with a lot of things that are going on around the country, not only in education. Barbara, for those who don't know, is a, a former president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association here, actually my, my uh, home union. Uh, as well as a current uh, editor at Labor Notes, where many of these stories of workers on the front line are being told. And we'll link to many of those pieces from our uh, Shelter and Solidarity Facebook page. Barbara, could you give us a report on what you're, first off, how you're doing, how you're weathering this crisis, and what you're hearing about, and what you think is your read on the, the state of the struggle, um, what people are demanding from the bottom up, and, and uh, you know, what's your read on that situation right now? Thanks, Joe. Uh, sorry for the technical difficulties. I don't, I'm on Zoom all day. I don't know why I decided uh, not to work right then. 
I guess I, I, I want to actually start. Um, and Matt, I, I imagine you said this flippantly, uh, but, but you said, um, as you were describing sort of the decisions that were made relative to the bailout, uh, people don't want to be free. And I, I want to actually, uh, no matter how flippantly you may have meant that, like I didn't hear you actually talk about people uh, when you were describing what went down. Uh, you were talking about politicians uh, who were making decisions, really, I would say, absent thinking about uh, the kinds of questions that Joe just asked me, what's actually happening for working people uh, in this country. And I, you know, I, another sort of related thought to that, uh, certainly private equity um, and financialization has really corrupted our capacity uh, to, um, to produce what we need, both in terms of healthcare and, uh, and, and, and goods uh, and services. But um, the other thing that this crisis is really revealing is this sort of struggle with the word essential worker. Uh, and, and, and actually you can even take the word essential out uh, and understand how much it is workers who produce uh, our economy who produce wealth. Uh, so, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the bailout is not so much a reorientation, but I think an exposure uh, through the pandemic and the crisis that it's created and the very concrete ways that workers are now experiencing their lives, whether they are essential workers uh, who are being denied safety and uh, well being, PPEs. Uh, whether they are non-essential workers who are being told that they have to work uh, and their choice that they're being given is either to work at a non-essential job uh, and get paid and or risk their life or not get paid uh, by, by staying home. And then workers uh, who like educators in particular, which industry I'm really close to public education, uh, who are really sort of experiencing in the ways that the work life is intruding in their personal lives, uh, the degree to which they've not had autonomy at work. Um, and what I see happening from the nurses network that organized a day of action yesterday across the country, uh, grassroots organizing, some unions supported it, but it really came from nurses who've been on the phone with each other on a regular basis saying we have to do something about personal uh, protective equipment. We have to connect that to nationalizing the hospitals is that we had uh, demonstrations by nurses supported by the communities uh, across the country yesterday fighting for those. We've seen uh, you know, in, in Detroit, uh, an auto plant uh, shut down for three days uh, before the governor uh, locked out and shut down Michigan, because they said, we're not essential workers, we're not going in there if it's not safe. Uh, so they made that decision uh, and then the governor shut, shut the plant down. We see GE workers here in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, who are walking out around health and safety issues and also then walking out to say, we need to be uh, transforming uh, these GE plants out in the Midwest that are uh, uh, not working and be building ventilators. So what we're actually seeing is, you know, and it, it, I don't know that we can call it anything like a movement yet, 
but we're seeing workers come up against in a very stark way uh, the realities of how capital works and in doing that beginning to experience the actual power they have because they are essential to producing the economy and to producing wealth. Uh, so to that degree, uh, we have an opportunity uh, and it's up to us, I think, as organizers to uh, be supporting these uh, grassroots movements and then helping people within that context to actually name what's happening, uh, experience their power and you know, knit together uh, the fabric of a movement. We're gonna be here for a long time. Uh, we're gonna be here for a long time because of the virus and we're gonna be here for a long time because of the economic devastation that's been wrought by this. Uh, we have uh, both a sense of urgency, but I also think uh, we have time and it's time to, that the power is gonna be in the workers organizing themselves and we're beginning to see that. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, so picking up from Barbara's comment about the power that workers have, I, I'd like to uh, kind of include all three of you with this, with this next question, which is, you know, what do you think people should be demanding right now or what could be demanded in this moment that, that uh, would really have move us towards a, taking advantage of the opportunities that Barbara is talking about? I mean, uh, so, for, so for Matt, I mean, I, I would love to hear what you would say. How could the Fed, uh, the, the Federal Reserve, the, the federal government, uh, the financial policy be restructured so that it would not be reinforcing these parasitic, uh, destructive private equity trends, but in fact would lead to a more investment in Main Street, in uh, the productive economy, in healthcare. Uh, you know, D Doug, you've already mentioned the, the possibility of pushing for a Green New Deal in this moment. I wonder if you could elaborate a little further concretely. And what uh, I'm not exactly saying you should give advice to workers what demands they should have, but but I mean, how can we kind of uh, inter, you know bring this kind of top-down analysis of the bailout into conversation with the workers' struggles? You know, what do you think a just people's bailout would look like, or what should be the what should the next bailout look like um, if there's going to be another you know package coming down down the pike, one that would uh, serve the needs of workers and organizers that are working with those workers on the front lines, both in the medical care field, but also more broadly, uh, all the people that help to make our society run. Uh, so, uh, Barbara, I'll pitch it to you first. I mean, what do you think are the demands that are coming up that have the potential to catalyze a kind of national movement beyond these kind of immediate local struggles? And then we'll go to, we'll go to Matt and Doug, and then we'll open it up for questions from the uh, audience. Yeah, well, I, I want to frame that question just a little bit. Uh, and that is that I, I think one of the things that I find most exciting about this moment, and I've you know, been in contact with workers who are considered essential workers, non-essential workers who are working, non-essential workers who are not working or maybe working from home, is I think the opening that we see is for workers to really have a deep sense that they are the ones who need to determine what's happening at the work site. Like the, 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 the possibilities of workplace democracy uh, become very real for people. And it's in immediate ways. Like, I'm, like nurses saying in Chicago saying, we're going to the break room. We're not going to the ER until you get us masks. We're just not going. Uh, and sort of recognizing we get to decide what safety looks like mm. uh, for ourselves. 
And I think we, we, it's important and certainly the nature of this conversation to talk about what broader demands would be, but I don't think we're gonna be able to achieve those broader demands if we skip over the part of uh, supporting, nurturing uh, workers really beginning to feel their power uh, and their wisdom in understanding what we need to do and what the world can look like. And I think that can lead to things like a Green New Deal that is really supported by workers who understand what that could look like and how to make that happen. Uh, I think certainly Medicare for all is something that should be out front. It cracks me up in a sick and sorry way that Joe Biden has doubled down on refusing that. Uh, but I, I, I actually think we can push beyond that. I think the nationalization of the hospitals is something that I hear nurses talking about. Um, that's really important. And I think in terms of a stimulus package, uh, and, and funding, you know, Bernie was asking for $2,000 uh, a month. I think it should be $3,000 a month per person for the duration of this. Uh, it's gonna be a pittance compared probably to what Boeing is getting. Uh, and, and then um, as well, I think we really need to look at how are we uh, putting money into our public institutions. Uh, so you're in higher ed. Uh, public higher ed. We need a stimulus package for public higher ed that says we will, you know, cancel debt uh, for for educators, for students, uh, and for public universities. Uh, you know very well, Joe, what it means uh, for UMass Boston to have the, the carry the debt that it does. Uh, make sure no jobs are lost, and put the money back into getting people on campus so we can have face-to-face -face classes. Uh, the same for uh, for public education. I agree with Doug was saying earlier, we have like, let's put money into the infrastructure, into transportation, into a Green New Deal. Uh, it is, um, I think those are things people want. I think as Matt has pointed out, the, uh, the, the ruling classes, uh, including most of our senators, whichever side they pretend to be on, are not interested in making the kinds of political commitments that it would mean uh, mm -hmm. to do that. And so it's gonna be up to us uh, to create the movement that makes that happen. We can't count on them. Powerfully put, Barbara. I mean, there's been this debate now, right, in the national media, who gets to decide when the economy opens again, right? Trump and some of his supporters saying, some, you know, before the end of April or May 1st, and then, then governors saying, no, we have the right, right? There, you could see in the context of that division amongst the ruling class, the possibility that workers could assert themselves and say, actually, you know what? We get to decide, right? Now, there's, the yeah, there's actually a, a, right? a, a growing movement among educators to say, we'll decide when we go back and, right. we'll, de and, that, and we'll decide what it looks like. Great. Uh, I mean, I think that's a powerful uh, point you make about needing to root whatever demands people are going to come up with, rooting them in actual workplace power. Otherwise, we're just talking to, you know, bought off politicians too often. Okay, or out of touch and bought off. Doug, I'd love to hear from you and then Matt, some, you know, if I could say concrete, maybe they're abstract as well, I don't know, but like concise kind of demands or at least you know, opportunities that you see in this moment, things that you think people should be considering taking up as uh, demands, whether it's on politicians or workplaces for how we can seize the transformative potential of this moment when the economy is so obviously a matter of politics. 
To the examples that uh, Barbara gave, made of uh, the workers organizing, I think it's been inspiring to see like Amazon workers, the Instacart workers, uh, the Whole Food workers, people who really have had no nothing like union organization at all, <laughs> taking matters into their own hands and trying to get them uh, sick benefits and uh, protective equipment and you know decent treatment from their um, trillionaire bosses. Um, so that 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 uh, explosion of activism among a, a a group of workers that hadn't seen that before. And that's, that's an interesting development. It would be really nice if the, the organized labor movement actually uh, got involved itself and you know cut off its um, rather sorry ass and did something. Uh, but um, another point I want to make too is that this, um, this moment is really making visible that um, workers produce value. You know, we've heard so much the last few decades about it's intangibles or, you know, managers or cre the creative class and all these uh, apps, you know, um, the lighter than air economy that was very popular uh, late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of that ideology came back again. No, workers acting on nature produce everything of economic value. And I think this moment is making that very clear. And the eagerness of so many employers to get workers back to work really shows how dependent upon ordinary workers, their wealth is. So it's, it's just a, a very clarifying moment to see that. But when I talk about a Green New Deal, I mean both parts of that. The green part, obviously, you know, the, the renewable energy, uh, you know, non-destructive forms of transportation, different ways of organizing the way we live physically. I mean, the, 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 you know, we can't have this kind of sprawl. There's just so many inefficiencies. There's no much, it doesn't make sense to send goods halfway around the world just to save a few bucks on wages uh, if there's going to be so much carbon spewed into the atmosphere um, to make that possible. So, you know, that, that, that the green side, yes, but also the New Deal side, um, building the conventional infrastructure, but also the redistributing of social programs that, uh, that we saw in the 30s. You know, the 30s saw the introduction of social security. Now we have this ridiculously awful minimal welfare state um, but there's been a brief expansion of unemployment insurance benefits, but they're still quite mean. Um, only about a third of the unemployed are drawing benefits in normal times. Um, the benefits are quite small. So we need real serious income support for when people get thrown out of work. Um, we need, obviously, you know, Medicare for all has never been uh, so, never been so clear. Um, and then just the general public sector is going to be under such tremendous attack now. Uh, cities and states uh, are going to be cutting their budgets savagely uh, because of the loss of revenue. Um, that, you know, we've got to do something to prevent that from happening. Uh, the, the federal government has to mobilize. But we also really have to think not just about money being sent, checks being sent, you know, um, magic money being pumped into the markets by the Fed. We need to think about the physical reconfiguration of our productive structure. Uh, producing different things in different ways under different sets of incentives. So it's not just about money, it's about how we produce and what we produce that we really need to rethink. And when we talk about that New Deal, I'm also thinking about that. Um, my friend Josh Mason uh, co-wrote a paper um, on the World War II model of uh, uh, how to organize production. Um, we could do that again. I, we had uh, you know, the, the, the World War II was fought with a great mobilization of the private sector under public direction. Um, and we need that again. We need the, you know, this, this Defense Production Act that Trump keeps flirting with. Maybe it's very powerful. We could invoke it, but you know, don't want to all that nonsense he's talked around that. We could do that. You know, we could reorganize production um, uh, rather quickly to produce ventilators and all the pro uh, protective equipment we need. And everybody's so slow to do that. We need tests. Know, antibody tests, uh, coronavirus tests. Um, we're not getting that. Uh, it's so, so, so slow. Um, we really need 
that we need to reconfigure that physical productive structure uh, and the set of incentives that motivate it. You know, it's all about um, whatever produced uh, for profit, not need. Uh, we need to <laughs> change that around. We need to pr produce for need, not profit. Uh, the even you know where we locate hospitals is based on what profit, not need. Uh, a place like Massachusetts General um, has is just rolling in money, whereas uh, urban hospitals are closing, rural hospitals are closing. But uh, so we need to, you know, do we organize the allocation of physical resources as well as uh, just thinking about sending checks around? And I think workers have a very important part, you know, role to play in that. Uh, nurses and teachers are um, very inspiring um, <laughs> occupations. I mean, they really uh, have um, the, the reproduction of our society, the protection of the weak, uh, and the reproduction of our society, the nurturing of the young. And they should really be. Um, have a very prominent role in, in, in the, how we think about re restructuring the society after this crisis. Um, and you know, the, the, the workers in this case are really an incredible resource uh, and our leaders have proven to be completely incompetent and foolish and venal uh, and uh, they need to step aside. I think you're muted. Sorry, I'm trying to keep the neighbors upstairs from stomping on your conversation. They have a little one running around all the time. <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, I couldn't agree more about the point about educators and nurses. Uh, and, I, and I want to gesture towards our, our conversation next week will in fact include one of the frontline uh, workers in the nurses union, the NYSNA, uh, Trey Kwan, who's also an organizer with Left Voice. Uh, and she will be joining us. And we may also have one of the organizers of the University of California uh, strike that's going on out there right now. So educator and nurse, nurse uh, organizers serving the people and organizing to strengthen the people will be back on this show next week. Just a little plug there. Matt, we're gonna kick it to you. And then I wanna recruit one of our guests, I should say one of our audience members, Ron, uh, who's also written on the opportunities of the Defense Production Act and some of this World War II metaphor and then analogy we're hearing thrown around, right? What are the opportunities of kind of taking that, that rhetoric of we're in a war footing right now and actually politicizing it in a progressive way? So Ron, if I could call on you after Matt. Matt, what do you think? I mean, right now could be, should be done. What, what should the bailout have included? What should the next one, if you even wanna call it a bailout at all, have included? How does your insight into the, the corrupt workings of the financial uh, system kind of uh, translate into kind of political, potential political openings, political demands in this moment beyond just getting educated about finance? Yeah, I mean, I, I what, uh, what Barbara and Doug were saying was, was I think I wanna like draw upon what they were noting, which is that, you know, if you think about workers and you think about um, inputs and physical uh, capacity, you know, what we're really talking about is, is production, right? That's what we're talking about. How do we make things and sell things that we need how should we do that? What's the what does the politics look like? And I think what what's exciting about this moment is that you know we've been living on consumer politics where we just assume that stuff just shows up in shelves forever, like for my whole life. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, we got to deal with shortages. We got to deal. We got, we see it's very clarifying. The workers make things, and you know people like me who just you know I get to study and write. That's not real. I mean that's just kind of like you know I like that I get to do it. I like that I enjoy you know is enjoyable um, and interesting. And I want to think it's useful, but you know, it, it's not that important right now. Um, but 
but I have, I, I don't want to talk about what the right thing to do in the bailout is. I want to talk about something that I think is just much more fundamental. We already passed the bailout. We passed it a month ago. And I don't think that it's fair uh, to say, oh, it's just a bunch of venal corrupt politicians. Um, oh, it doesn't have to do with workers. Like, I'm sorry, but we're in a democracy. We elected these people. We had um, major presidential campaign. One of the major candidates, Bernie Sanders, ran basically on, on a massive expansion of public health infrastructure. Another one of the candidates, Elizabeth Warren, ran on cracking down on Wall Street. Both of them made arguments that they were an important social movement. Both of them talked about organizing. Both of them talked about workers. And when push came to shove, they have massive amount. They can raise a lot of money. They can organize a lot of people. They both had what they called social movements. And I uh, got to admit that they had zero policy impact when it mattered, none, zero. Faced with the largest public health crisis in our lifetimes and a massive financial crisis that uh, the largest one at least since 2008, maybe larger, zero impact. And, and not only zero impact, but if you actually talk to people who are paying attention to politics now, which is not just politicians, but various supporters, various people who talk about social movements or whatever, they literally do not and cannot internalize what Bernie Sanders did. That Bernie Sanders took his movement, which he started basically uh, because, you know, got popular because of the anger over the bailouts. And the final act that he did with his movement, which he called a movement, was to transfer trillions of dollars to Wall Street. I think that's a catastrophe. I think that's a failure. And I don't just blame abstract politicians. I think that is a failure of the left. And I think no one on the left has admitted it or reckoned with it or tried to figure out what the hell to do and what went wrong. I think it's a catastrophic ideological failure. I think we need to ditch the Green New Deal framing. I think we need to look back and say everything we did failed and just start, you know, look, it's exciting to see workers, you know, striking, but as Doug pointed out, it's not organized labor doing that. There are no institutional reach to those people who are rightfully angry. I don't see any reason to assume that we have anything to offer. And I think that we should really look into what we did wrong and say, well, how do we screw this up so badly? That's why I'm saying, look at corporate power because I studied corporate power and I noticed there's all this stuff that was going on. And I tried to tell lots of people, hey, this is what's going on. And it just wasn't really any interest in it because it's like, oh, well, what does that have to do with you know, the ordinary person? And it's, oh, that's too complicated. To, but it's like, I'm sorry, but that's trillions of dollars. You can't just pretend that that doesn't matter and that everything has to do with the story of some worker. It's just, that's just not a way, that's not a legitimate way to wield power. It's not a legitimate political movement. It's just a way of, of doing therapy, personal therapy, um, and watch as you watch things get worse. And I really think that that's, that we have to, you know, either internalize that and deal with it and rethink how we operate or just resign ourselves to being irrelevant, one of the two. Yeah, uh, I mean, I appreciate that provocation, Matt. Um, I do wanna bring in some other voices, but I, before we move on from your point, I mean, I wanna say our plan on uh, shelter and solidarity is to have a deep dive on summing up uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the presidential election, 
and also looking at what you know the kind of COVID crisis means for democracy itself in this moment. We hope to have Bill Fletcher actually hosting well, let, that. Let me, let me push you. Let me prod you on something then. Yeah. Because this is the left, okay? So well, I'm going to push you. Well, well, let me say one thing first, which I would, I would insist on making a distinction, although I, I appreciate the provocation. It's a distinction between those who want to settle for just cathartic narrative and those who are actually working at the grassroots level to try to make a real left possible, at least. You know, and certainly I don't buy. I, just, I don't buy that argument because I don't think that the grassroots left is the only thing that matters. I think I've heard this grassroots organizer. Who's more important? Pundits in Washington. I, I yeah. think citizens I mean, are more you're, important. You're, you're the one who's presenting are, the Bernie Sanders campaign as the example. I don't even. That's not even what I'm talking about. You're the one who's talking about elected leaders. You name mentioned as every a way, single. I'm Doug, talking about workers organizing at the worksite to know their look, real power yeah. in order to transform. They don't have the any. They don't have any real power. Society. I'm no. sorry. They don't have any of real power. Of course they do. They That's why the real... economy's trash. They don't. No, no. The economy's trash because they don't have any real power. Look, Doug, you named every single elected official and said every single one of them is crazy okay. and venal. Who do you think they are? Who do you think elects them? People do. Democrats do. Voters do. I'm I'm actually representing normal people. I'm actually talking about what most people think. You guys are making up a fantasy world in which, like, we're all just victims. No, we're not. I'm sorry. Whoa, but whoa, we whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody Matt, said Matt, that. I'm going to jump in there, Matt. I mean, mis I, I misconstruing think... the conversation. Look, this yeah, is the totally problem Matt, here. Matt, can yeah, you, you listen as well as speak? I just want to, I, I think you're, you're being heard here. And I, I do appreciate, I don't speak for others. I appreciate the provocation because I do see the tendency you're talking about. But I do, from my standpoint, as a member of you know, a labor movement, as an educator, as an activist, as a communicator, as a member of, I see tensions and struggles between the tendency you're talking about and other tendencies. Now, I'm just gonna ask you to take on faith that they exist. Now, maybe they don't have enough power to show up on your radar right now, and that is a problem. But I, I just don't think it's fair to assume, without really knowing the people that are here, uh, that they are just to be lumped in with uh, the liberal right left right there, you know these and now now one of my problems i think one of my concerns is that the people who do see i value political i value politics okay yeah. i value it i think that discussions of politics i think that discussions in congress matter i think that discussions among elected officials matter those people get elected to okay. represent people i think that those votes matter and i don't believe that if there's just and i i your point about strikes and i think it's really exciting to see lots of strikes i think it's really exciting to see workers discovering their own power over workplaces but i think it's a real mistake to discount political discourse just because it people weren't talking about the things that you care about that matters yeah. the conversations among elected officials matters absolutely we not live in a dictatorship we elect these people so if these people are talking about things in a way that's destructive or catastrophic which i yeah. think that they are we voted for them we chose them. That's on us too. And we have to acknowledge that. Some of us did. And it's true. I think, I mean, just, I'm going to just very, be very brief. And then I'm going to pitch it. I'm going to bring Ron into the conversation. And I'd love to hear Doug and Barbara's and others response to this, but also, uh, you know, on other issues. I mean, I think one of the dangers is there are plenty of people I see on social media right now who call themselves on the left, radical left or whatever, who are denouncing Bernie Sanders for his, you know, for endorsing Joe Biden or for the bailout vote. But too often, I find that that resistance to, you know, the liberal turn in the Sanders camp takes what we might call uh, inadequately political form, right? It, it takes an almost rejection of electoral politics 
uh, per se, right? It's just like kind of baby with the bathwater rather than finding, struggling with the tougher question, which is how do we actually bring a real left analysis and real left politics into a political form that can fight inside the system as well as outside it? To me, that's where I'm coming from. And I, and I don't see enough of well, that. I'm not, I'm not persuaded that there is, that the left is the right way to do this. I, I don't see, I, I, I don't I, see I, a real, I don't see a seriousness. So what is the right the way? I mean, what do you recommend? I, have, I see I a lot of denunciation, but I don't hear any, uh, I don't any have an answer. For, I don't have an answer for you, but I think that, I okay. think that what we're seeing right now, and it, this is particularly nasty with China, where, Matt, where can I, the, before we bring in China, can we go to Ron? Ron's been very patient and we, sure. one of the, you know, the promises of our show is that we get 15 minutes for, for live audience to participate and our guests can also listen and respond. Okay, Ron, let's go to you. Well, um, I'm Heiduk, everybody. Yeah. Part of, uh, and I hope that we can get to some of the other folks that are on and have them uh, weigh in, because I think this is a really robust and important conversation, you know, uh, to sort of follow from Matt's uh, initial um, quoting someone from history, you know, um, Lenin once put it, you know, what is to be done? So this, I don't think it's either or, right? That's sort of my punchline. I don't think that um, the electoral route, I think, I think you, you ignore elections at your own risk. Look what we got. We got Trump as a good example. I think that um, to the extent that uh, the movements and the workers' movement in particular um, and growing consciousness of it, I can uh, allude to another great uh, couple of works, uh, Marx's class struggles in France and the 18th Brumaire um, really uh, grapple with this um, sort of, you know, the uprisings, the class conflict, and um, tearing away the veil, as Marx would talk about the, the bourgeois democracy, right? Um, and yet, here we are with um, people who are thrown out of work, right? And in uh, dire consequences in terms of health. Um, and increasingly, this crisis is going to really demand uh, solutions. And I want to use the multiple because I think um, there's we can't we can't just criticize without um, organizing and, and being really strategic. You know, there's lots of the the piece that I wrote that's up on um, you know that we have to organize now like our lives depend on it. Because guess what? <laughs> For so many people, that's really what we're talking about. And so to tie it back to some of the the business around Bernie, right? So to the extent that Bernie's campaign and his um, apparatus, um, I think. I don't think that's all said and done. I mean, uh, Daniel Denver from uh, wrote a piece in Jacobin uh, calling on the Bernie folks to retool that campaign in ways that really can be a organizing force. I mean, you know, 2 million donors, right? Tens of thousands of volunteers that knocked on millions of doors um, and they have actual paid staff still. And there's other organizations that are uh, that potentially can help provide the infrastructure to a response that's um, that's really uh, leftish, um, and I think that we have to demand more, of course, of you know Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and all the rest. I mean, I'm here in San Francisco and talking to some folks about you know Nancy Pelosi's one of her offices is here, and we should go do something. How do you do this now in the shelter-in-place mm -hmm. moment? Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, well, I mean, there's so many things that I want to jump into in terms of how you do the organizer. I wish my colleague, Anthony Hankey was here with us today um, because he's been working with a lot of farm worker organizations around the country. That's one of his areas is farm worker organizing. 
and um, the need, needs there are tremendously acute and the capacity of farm workers who are seeing now uh, their power, but also the bankruptcy in the system, right? I mean, farmers are told to dump their milk, plow under their crops, right? And, and yet there's like a mile long line of people at a food bank. Those, those conditions are just gonna get worse. People have been told that they're gonna get a $1,200 check. It's inadequate. But when they don't show up or when that money runs out, you know, we're talking about uh, social dislocation on a scale we've not seen in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that their Bernie's campaign has helped elevate, you know, Medicare for all, $15 an hour, abolish student debt, you know, the Green New Deal, like all tax the rich. All of these things are much more popular now than they've been before be precisely because of Bernie's campaign. And so I, I would just argue for looking to the, the excitement and the organizations that rallied around those campaigns as entities that could form an infrastructure for fighting in ways that, yes, try to get those elected officials to be more responsive. They're gonna talk about, they're talking about a next package. What's that gonna look like? Maybe we can impress upon them the, um, the fierce urgency of now, if I can use that phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, that demands that they actually leverage their capacity to negotiate that because the House has the power. Right? Ron, just to, pause. To make sure. Oh, cut sorry. out, but we got you. I want to point, Ron has a, some really tremendous ideas here. I want to point everyone who's on this call and who's listening or watching to his piece at uh, the, the, the new blog of socialism and democracy, that's sdblog.org. He very provocatively titled the piece, uh, well, along the lines of how the virus can actually be an ally, right? That the kind of leverage of the threat the virus poses even to wealthier ruling class folks can actually be an ally in asserting kind of working class demands in a way that we could use strategically. And so I just want to point people to that piece and we will link it from our website and from our, from our Facebook page. Um, now, the last back and forth with, uh, with Matt, we kind of left out Doug and Barbara a little bit. Um, I would like to welcome them back into this, uh, not only to respond to Matt's point, but maybe looking forward, like where do you see the possibility of building power? How do we get a, such a corrupt political class to listen? Uh, do you see it as just a failure of pe everyday people or is there a problem with what, what counts as democracy even in our, you know, in our society right now that, that, that kind of uh, mediates and, and makes mincemeat of people's actual demands? Uh, how do you respond to this, uh, this, uh, this question of how we can really build power in this moment? And you know, take it anywhere you want if you want to respond to other things that have been said. Who? Let's go to Doug and then Barbara. Okay, I would like to um, say a couple of things. One is that the idea that we elect these people is a really um, rather limited understanding of how power works in this uh, country. Um, I think uh, we, we know that uh, people in Congress, elected officials pay most attention to uh, the, the, the business class. Uh, the, uh, the work of Benjamin Page and his colleagues uh, show that on most major legislation of the last few decades, the, uh, the preferences of the top 1% matter and uh, the opinions of the rest of uh, the electorate don't matter at all. Um, but also that 40 or so years of neoliberalism has so successfully dampened down people's expectations <clears throat> for politics, for collective action, for what they can expect from the public sector, what they can expect on the job, uh, out of the, out of, you know, uh, in the way of, of, of salaries and benefits, of, of worker rights, 
they, they just expect nothing. They're almost grateful now to have a job. To see these people like, de demonstrating uh, in, um, in in Michigan yesterday, like let us go back to work. You know that the, the urge to go back to work rather than like try to figure out how we get through this crisis was kind of dispiriting to watch. Um, and then you know the uh, the preferences of the Democratic electorate, the primary electorate, um, the, the, with these debased notions of electability, the, the fear of doing anything to challenge the existing power structure. Um, Bernie did the best he could, but you know he had an awful lot stacked against him. Uh, and uh, you know, watching Obama orchestrate uh, this, uh, the uh, the collective uh, movement behind Biden was really a, also quite a, a quite a depressing, uh, but entirely predictable um, act of a, a guy who would uh, rather be sailing with David Geffen uh, than thinking about how uh, he can make the uh, the lives of the, the broad population better. Um, yeah, so we really need to fight that uh, that atomization, that sense of defeat that is so abroad among um, most people, uh, and this um, this uh, willingness uh, to defer to the wishes of the powerful uh, or fear that challenging it would uh, would uh, you know ca cause uh, the reelection of Trump. Um, it's uh, the politics right now. You know, it seemed for a moment very hopeful. It seemed like we might break out of all this, but now um, it's kind of uh, depressing again that uh, the doddering fool uh, Biden is at the top of the ticket. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I just um, there is this moment of possibility where uh, workers are showing some degree of of, of uh, the, the power of, or potential power of workers is very very visible. Uh, but that's easily shattered, and it's really hard to organize. So the labor movement should be in there, actually doing more than it is. Uh, but uh, yeah. uh, um, but we need people need some sense of, of that they have power to make things better. Yes. And uh, it's very hard for them to develop that sense after being so beat upon for so many years. And on that, I want to bring Barbara in for, a, I know she needs to go in a moment, Barbara. Uh, one thing I've always been inspired by you is your ability to help people raise their expectations, right? You, you talk about raising expectations as a, as a necessary precursor to raising hell, right? Uh, that, that people have been beaten down. Could you pick up, I think, in some sense, Doug's comment really walks into your into your ballpark here. I mean, how do you address this issue of demoralization and the possibility of raised expectations, even despite uh, the obstacles of this uh, moment? Yeah, I, mean, I, I wanted to go there. Uh, so I appreciate the uh, segue, Doug. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think it goes back to why it matters that, uh, that we organize initially in the places that people work and live. Uh, that that people begin to that people have an experience of take collect taking collective action, engaging in collective struggle, uh, and time and time again in my experience, uh, when workers do that, uh, they do discover their power. Uh, they discover the possibilities of their power, uh, and they want more. Uh, they, they, you know, so it, it matters to have a vision of what's possible in order to engage people, for people to be angry enough about what they could have and don't have. Uh, but that only becomes real uh, when workers organize themselves uh, and act collectively to begin to achieve wins. And I, I think like one of the things that makes this moment uh, a moment of real possibility is that prior to the pandemic and prior to the, the sort of wildcat rough uh, disorganized strikes that we see out there right now is that we've seen public sector workers in particular educators 
are have had an incredible run for the last 10 years, beginning with the Chicago Teachers Union and the core caucus taking over there, their strikes of uh, 2012, the UTLA strike just a year ago in January, <clears throat> the organizing in the red states, which was, uh, you know, West Virginia started that off, that West Virginia group is now running for leadership in their union. Uh, you know, I am part of a network of caucuses uh, in education unions across the country, some of which have one leadership, like I did here in Massachusetts, uh, some that are, are pushing their, uh, their unions. Uh, we're at a different moment in terms of that level of power. We we're also seeing the nurses unions doing the same. Uh, so that's out there. And people are transformed uh, by that kind of action. Uh, they're not transformed as much or in the same way, uh, even though canvassing can be great by the electoral pol uh, political strategy. Uh, they, they, that, you know, that end game is always that the ways that I have power is vote. Uh, and you may or may not feel that as part of a collective movement. But when you act together uh, in an immediate way, to use your collective power to make change and to, and to have, the, have, have the world be better in, in front of you, uh, that changes you. And that helps people begin to understand how power works. Uh, and that's what's been missing. Uh, totally agree that the labor movement has failed us uh, for a long time about that. But that's also what won us the, the New Deal. Uh, you know, that's how we got there. Uh, that's what pushed the politicians eventually. Uh, it takes a faith in, in actual democracy. It takes a faith in the fact that when people get together and identify issues and organize themselves to say, here's a way we can solve that problem, uh, that they'll do it. Uh, and that's like why I used to tell my students when I was a, a student teacher, when I was a teacher educator, uh, that it like cynicism is like one of the only sins. Uh, if we believe in democracy and we believe in organizing, we believe in, in the possibility of transformation, uh, we have to have faith that people can do that. And that's our responsibility. Yeah, I, I appreciate that com uh, comment, Barbara. And I, I, uh, you inspire me. And actually, I mean, one of the goals of Shelter and Solidarity is not only to come up with the answers to these you know, questions and, and, and struggles and strategies, though I hope that we can pull some new ideas out of this mix, but also to help sustain each other through this moment, right? And kind of, because I'm, I'm a big believer that that faith is not just an intellectual aspect, although that's a part of it, right? That the, the objective notion that things could be different, right? But but it, there's a social component, right? You need other people to help lift up that that horizon as well. And uh, I will I will say this conversation for me has, uh, has, has been very provocative, uh, thought-provoking, but also to see all your faces uh, from quarantine is is helpful too. Uh, I want to welcome. I want to point out the Matt. If if you want to come back and dig into more the problems with the left and how we can work through if the left's even going to be the name of it after the end of this change, I'd love to have you back. Same thing to Doug, and definitely I've already extended that invitation to Barbara to come back. We're going to talk about educational workers uh, organizing, students and educational communities organizing in this moment, as even as people are having to teach from home. Um, so we will be coming back next Thursday with a show focused on nurses' struggles 
perhaps educator struggles as well. We'll be doing a, a, a show on what's the threats to democracy, even in its bourgeois electoral form in this moment with Bill Fletcher in a couple weeks. Uh, Tim Sheard, a long, lifelong nurse and labor organizer, will be helping to host our show next week. And we'll be here again, five o'clock uh, on Thursday. We ask you to join us, uh, share this material, send us your feedback. You can email me at joe at shelterandsolidarity.org if you have any suggestions. Um, I, I, obviously, this is a long haul we're in together. And thank you for being here tonight. Uh, and see you next time.